Welcome to the podcast series of the Winning Peace Conference, which will take place on the 11th and 12th October 2018 at the German Federal Foreign Office in Berlin. You can find information about the registration program and invited speakers on our website win-peace-conference.berlin. My name is Cedric Jessen, and I have the pleasure to welcome Rana Mita to talk about the history of modern China and particularly about the Chinese experience during the two world wars. Rana Mita is Professor of History and Politics of Modern China at the University of Oxford, and his last book, which is about the Second Sino-Japanese War, which would eventually be part of the Second World War, received many awards and international recognition. But Rana Mitter is not only an author and university professor. He is also presenting radio programs such as Chinese Characters on the BBC, where you can learn about a whole range of personalities such as Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping, but also Bruce Lee and the so-called Factory Girls. Welcome, Rana, and thank you very much for participating in our podcast series. It's a pleasure to be here, Severic. Thank you. Um, I would like to first talk about the relationship between China and modernity. And because the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century is a period marked by many, many social and political experiences in China. The Chinese society is trying to invent itself anew. I'm thinking of the Republican Revolution of 1911, which put an end to the reign of the Qing dynasty. But I'm also thinking of the May 4th movement of 1919 that would form the base of the Chinese Communist Party, founded in 1921. So, Rana, how come that the Chinese Empire ended so abruptly? And what happened during the First World War so that Chinese society went through such changes afterwards? Well, Severic, it's an excellent question. And of course, the series of podcasts of which this is one part are really concentrating on that question of the aftermath of the First World War. And when we use that phrase, World War, in Europe, I sometimes think we don't actually think through it carefully enough, because quite often when we talk about that war, we really only talk about the European dimension. So anyone growing up in Britain or France or Germany would, of course, know names like the Somme, Passchendaele. Uh, Flanders and so forth. But the fact that it really was a global war, that the Middle East and that Asia were involved as well, is often obscured a bit. So I'm going to answer your question by saying that actually understanding the aftermath of the First World War and China's involvement in it is a really important key, not just to understanding those years of the 1910s and 1920s, but actually to understanding the whole path of China's development in the 20th century, and even in the 21st. So I'll explain what I mean by that. China was very much involved in the First World War. And if you look at the events of the early 20th century, you'll see why. In the late 19th and early 20th century, the 1890s and the early 1900s, China found itself in a real dilemma. Many outside countries, imperialist countries, the UK, France, uh, Germany, in fact, at that time, the United States had basically either occupied parts of China or come into it really using force, looking to control trading rights and diplomatic rights with China, essentially robbing China of much of its sovereignty. And this was really the premier, the most important diplomatic and political problem for China for many, many tens of years. Now, 
the weakness of the last Chinese imperial dynasty, the Qing dynasty, was such that in the year 1911, it finally fell. It basically fell under the force of a rather unexpected revolution in October of that year, which saw a variety of people, secret societies, a newly emergent Chinese middle class, uh, warlords coming together and essentially toppling the dynasty. It then created Asia's first republic. So in 1911, 1912, China's revolution essentially gave Asia its first republic. But that didn't really solve the problems that still existed. The fact, as some people put it at that time within China, that China was suffering from warlords from within and imperialism from outside. So a double set of problems, you might say, internally generated, but also because of the international environment. And that's how the story emerges of China becoming part of World War One. So we, of course, in the West tend to think of the showdown between uh, the allies, Britain, France, Russia, and on the other side, the central powers, Germany, Austro-Hungary, and Turkey. But it's forgotten that during those years, after the fighting had broken out, both sides were desperate to seek allies. And in fact, the Chinese warlord government of the time in the 1914 to 1918 period decided that it wanted to make a gesture that it wanted to show that it could, too, be an international actor. And therefore, first of all, the Chinese government at the time actually offered Chinese soldiers to fight on the European front. Now, this offer was actually rejected in the end. Uh, the French were willing to consider it, but the British, for re reasons of um, essentially racial discrimination, were not keen to have Chinese soldiers fighting alongside the British ones, even though, of course, Indian troops from the empire did also fight in World War One. But something like 100,000 Chinese did go to the Western Front in France and Belgium. They went not as soldiers, but as workers. So when the trenches were being dug, when the supplies behind the lines were being set up, a lot of the, the hard work was being done by Chinese workers. And in fact, some 3,000 of them died there in France and Belgium, and their war graves are still very much there in um, uh, uh, in the soil of France and Belgium today. You can, you can go and see them if you, if you take the time. Now, as a result of this, as a result of this major contribution to the war effort, the Chinese felt that they would get a reward at the Paris Peace Conference in 1918 to 1919. They felt that having made this major contribution to the Allied war effort, once the Allies had won, at that point, they would be given uh, a reward in terms of, for instance, having the former German colonies in China, in places like Qingdao on the Eastern Front, handed back to the Chinese government. But that didn't happen. That moment of the Paris Peace Conference, which we think of as a very European event, is actually a very important moment for China. And we could say that the events that happened in that year, in 1919 in Paris, actually had reverberations which went all the way to Beijing and beyond, and still continue to be very resonant even in the present day. And what happened then in 1919 after the, the conflict ended, and uh, China realized that European powers were not willing to um, to recognize its sacrifices. And uh, what led to this movement, this revolutionary movement of the May 4th movement? Uh, yeah, exactly, in, in May 1919. Well, you put your finger on it there, Sevaik. That There's one date that sits at the center of this, 4th of May 
1919. Now, that's a date, again, that doesn't necessarily mean that much to people in the West. But if you ask any educated Chinese, even today, in the year 2018, what that date means, May 4th, no year is necessary. They'll know exactly what you mean. And the reason is this. At the end of the Paris Peace Conference, when the Treaty of Versailles was agreed, China found that it was not, in fact, given back the former German colonies on Chinese soil that it had expected as the reward for its contribution to providing labor for the Western Front uh, during the, the years of conflict. Uh, a combination of sort of underhand dealing by uh, the Western European powers, uh, Lloyd George, Clemenceau, Orlando of Italy, uh, came together with some fairly dubious dealings by Chinese leaders who were also working, in some cases, uh, together with the Japanese. So it's a complex and slightly murky story. But the end result was that China did not get back its lost territories, which had been under German control. They were handed over to Japan instead. Now, this, of course, happened in Paris. But thanks to the telegraph, thanks to modern technology, the news got back to China very, very quickly. And there was outrage particularly amongst the young intellectuals, students, writers, who basically um, were studying at some of China's finest universities, Peking University, for instance, in the capital city of Beijing. These young men and women felt so outraged by the way in which they felt that China had been cheated, that its national honor had been lost, that they decided they had to hold a demonstration. And some 3,000 of them stood in front of the Gate of Heavenly Peace, which as today, is the front of the Forbidden City, the major imperial palace complex in Tiananmen, right in the center of Beijing. And they demonstrated against the uh, humiliation of their country at Paris, as they'd seen it. So from their point of view, the Allied victory in World War One, in the First World War, was not the final triumph of good over evil or the forces of the alliance over the central powers. It was yet another humiliation for China. And as a result of that demonstration, both before and after, you find that there's also a bigger flowering of a much stronger sense of national identity in China. Young intellectual writers, people like Lu Xun, uh, one of the great modernist writers of modern China, people like the young Mao Zedong, who would, of course, go on to become the ruler of all China under its communist government in the 1950s and 60s, but in those days was just a, a young student or a library assistant in Beijing. All of these sorts of people feeling outraged at the way that uh, China had been treated by the Western powers at the Paris Peace Conference, decided to leverage, to use their outrage, to argue that China had to change its complete political culture. And they had one slogan that they used in one line to express that need for a new culture. They talked about Tsai Xianshang, De Xianshang, or translated, that means Mr. Science and Mr. Democracy. In other words, the idea of education and uh, the, the finding of new knowledge to try and modernize China on the one hand, and popular political participation, a more democratic form of government rather than autocracy on the other hand. So with these two characters, Mr. Science and Mr. Democracy, the Chinese uh, younger generation, the intellectuals, took this poisoned legacy of the Versailles Treaty and tried to build up a new agenda for a modernized, proud and more um, uh, uh, nationalistic Chinese state. And they, as I understand, these young intellectuals felt the need to shape a new ideology, a new philosophy against the dominant 
philosophy of Confucius. Why is that and why does success fall in it? One of the most important and interesting areas in which the young thinkers in China who were demonstrating against the Versailles Treaty decided that action was needed was to push back against what many of them thought was the dangerous, uh, in many ways, very toxic legacy of the man who has often been regarded as China's greatest thinker, and that's Confucius, the philosopher of uh, the 6th century BC. He'd obviously been you know, long since dead for two and a half thousand years by the time you get to the early 20th century. But these young people argued, the most radical ones argued, that Confucius and his philosophy had been at the heart of what made China weak. So what do they mean by that? Well, Confucianism, like Christianity, like uh, um, a whole variety of thought systems, is complex, has many contradictions within it, and it cannot be defined simply. But if you were looking at certain precepts that exist within it, you could argue that on the one hand, it argues in favor of harmony, the idea of a more kind of harmonious and peaceful society, which sounds good, but it also believes in hierarchy, the idea that people in society should know their place and that things should operate top to bottom. So ruler to subject or father to son or husband to wife. These sorts of relationships are very much part of the Confucian ordering of society. And many of these young people said it was this deference, this belief in hierarchy that had brought China low in the late 19th century because Confucius's thought was seen to be by that stage backward looking inward-looking, in some ways not willing to embrace technological change. And for China to recover from this position, they felt, it had to completely reject that past and instead embrace a sort of dynamism, which could be violent within itself, but also create a more sort of linear, progressive and forward-looking system of thought. So rather in the way that before World War I and during it, many of the Italian futurists, artists like Marinetti, thought about the way in which art could express ideas of speed and dynamism and even violence as being positive things. So many young people, young thinkers in China also looked at the norms of Confucian society, anti-violence, but very pro-hierarchy, and asked whether that world needed to be turned upside down. And certainly in their debating societies, in their tea houses, and actually in the formation of new political movements, they did their best to turn China around and of course, central to that whole turning around was the young, fledgling and very new Chinese Communist Party, in which that young librarian I've mentioned, that young man named Mao Zedong, was, of course, a founding member. And this, I, I, th I find it quite surprising that out of this movement, which, as you said, tried to shape a new ideology, rejecting the, the hierarchical perception or, or conception of Confucius, um, out of this movement grew a communist party which is also very organized and uh, hierarchically organized actually. So how come, what, what, is this a paradox, is this a contradiction or, or do you see that? It is of course one of the ironies that the Communist Party of China, which would become essentially a machine that would rule China as it does in the present day, I mean As we speak here in the, in the year 2018, I think the Chinese Communist Party has nearly 100 million members and it's still growing. So from its origins in the 1920s, it has certainly been uh, something that has changed and grown. But I don't think there is a contradiction at the beginning in terms of the way it was organized. Because think about what the Communist Party of China was 
in that period of the May 4th movement, the 1910s and 1920s. First of all, it was very inspired by another aspect of the aftermath of World War I. And I've been saying that people often don't think of China as being part of World War I, but in terms both of participation in it as laborers and also thinking about the aftermath, Chinese were very, very much involved in thinking about the war's global role. And in this case, too, one particular aftermath, the Bolshevik Revolution in Russia, was immensely inspiring. Now, of course, we now know that that uh, revolution became ossified. It was taken over by Stalin and Stalinism. The gulags emerged and the Soviet system essentially became a very disappointing one in terms of what many of the young communists who join it thought it might be. But of course, in 1917 and immediately afterwards, that wasn't apparent. And it appeared to many Chinese thinkers that actually the revolution provided not a hierarchy, not the kind of rigid thinking of the past, but rather something very new. Just we have to remember how new the idea of that kind of socialist revolution was to anyone, but certainly to the Chinese in the years immediately after World War I. And so when we think of what the communists in China did, they were not immediately organizing themselves in the way that Lenin or Stalin did. It wasn't that kind of party. We're talking about people who started out in studies societies, little groups where they might read Marx or other thinkers together, perhaps over cups of tea, and argue about it late into the night. Now, they did in the year 1921 form themselves more formally into a uh, communist party in the sense that we understand it. But we're still talking about a very small organization at its beginning, maybe a few tens of members. So I think we need to be sure that we are not projecting backwards because we know that the Chinese Communist Party would eventually come to power as a military machine in 1949 because we know that it's now the most powerful ruling communist party anywhere in the world. We mustn't imagine it was like that in 1921. It wasn't. It was a much more amateur, much smaller, much more vulnerable sort of organization that was very much part of the spirit of that age of trying to find new ways to change Chinese culture and turn that Chinese world upside down. You talked about modernization, modernization of the country and, um, well, from our point of view nowadays, it is obvious that uh, China is the second largest economy of the world and Japan is the, the third. Um, this seems quite normal to present-day observers, but this development of China and of Japan as well is actually quite recent and quite unexpected, actually. It is well known that, it is well known that the Japanese society stayed closed to the outer world until the second half of the 19th century and began a rapid industrialization of its economy that led it to be the major regional power. Japan and China were both pre-industrial empires dominated by industrialist European great powers, as you said before. But somehow Japan modernized quickly And China didn't. How can we explain this situation? And why did Japan take the lead in this industrialization of its economy and the development of its army um, and, and went from a feudalistic society to a very modern, modernized society in maybe one century or so? The question you've asked, why did, China, why did Japan modernize so successfully in terms of industrialization and national organization in the late 19th century, and why did China not manage to do that, 
is, of course, a question that many, many Chinese asked themselves at exactly the same time. We have plenty of records of Chinese leaders at the time, people like Li Hongzhang, a major official of the Qing dynasty court, looking at Japan and asking this question of how come these tiny islands to our eastern side have managed to succeed where we, the huge celestial empire, has failed. There isn't one simple answer, but there are a couple of factors that I think do make a difference. One of them is that Japan was a country that was relatively closed to the outside world before the 1860s. Not completely closed by any means, but relatively closed off. But it was still well integrated. Uh, it was well run. Uh, its economy was pretty successful. It was able, for instance, to build a system of fortresses, of roads. Um, it also managed to unify its culture fairly effectively. So during those 200 years of relative isolation from the outside world, Japan did not stand still. It had a very lively court culture, a popular culture, plays, um, commercial culture, all of that developing away. And that stood it in good stead when finally the Westerners came to allow a new elite, which emerged, a military elite in the 1860s, to basically push back and actually essentially launch a kind of internal takeover of Japan in the name of the emperor, but basically saying to uh, Japan as a whole that this new group of aristocrats was going to take the, take the reins and then basically modernize the society, which they did with immense speed and success. You could say that the industrialization of Japan in the last 20 years of the 19th century is maybe the fastest industrialization and growth in any economy in the world, perhaps until China in the early 21st century. So why didn't China take the same path? Well, one of the reasons is that the governmental system within China itself was actually much weaker and much less integrated. China, of course, is just a much bigger country than Japan. And that meant that the state, the Qing dynasty state, had to spread itself very wide and very thin. It's fair to say that the state penetrated very far in China. It spread across the whole of this huge country, but it didn't penetrate very deep beyond the magistrate's office, beyond certain tax requirements, there wasn't necessarily huge presence for the state. So when the imperial powers arrived selling opium, such as the British in the 19th century, there wasn't a huge infrastructure that enabled the state to actually push back. Then China found itself vulnerable to a whole variety of weakening factors, not least wars. The Taiping War of the 1850s and 60s, in which a crazed uh, Chinese uh, um, uh, man named uh, Hong Xiuqian um, essentially thought that he was Jesus's younger brother and launched a war against the ruling dynasty, which actually lasted for the best part of a decade and a half and nearly destroyed the power of the emperor in the, uh, the middle of uh, in, in the um, central part of China. Uh, in addition to that, uh, the Boxer Uprising of 1900, when uh, peasant rebels from within China basically rose up in favor of the dynasty, but against the foreigners who were present, were defeated. And that led to the uh, foreign powers demanding huge tax indemnities from the Chinese in return. So a combination of internal rebellions, governmental weakness and continuing demands by imperial powers from outside came together to really weaken China eventually causing the revolution of 1911, where the last emperor, who was a, a boy of just five years old, had to abdicate. Japan managed to essentially recover itself very fast. And not only did it manage to repel the foreigners, but even, of course, became an imperial power in its own right by the early 20th century. And by becoming an imperial power, Japan challenged uh, China directly in two wars. And 
I would like to focus on the second Sino-Japanese war, which began in 1937. And uh, from your point of view, Mark, the beginning of the Second World War. And, well, I was wondering, because as Westerners, we don't know actually anything about the Chinese experience during the Second World War, even though it has been a battlefield, uh, even though Chinese has lost a huge number of civilians and soldiers. So I would like first to ask you what was the, the Chinese experience during this war and um, what was the aim of Japan by, when Japan decided to invade, invade China? Just as we tend to think of the European front only when we think about World War I and forget that China and indeed, indeed Japan were both involved, so when we think about the Second World War, we do often think about Japan and the Pacific and the war against the United States. But once again, we tend to forget in the West that China was very much involved. And it's worth remembering some of the facts and figures that outline China's involvement in the Second World War. First of all, one could argue that China fought for longer than any other allied power. Again, we tend to think of the war as starting with the invasion of Poland in September 1939 in Europe. But actually, there's a very good case to argue that it began on the 7th of July 1937 with an outbreak of fighting between Japanese and Chinese troops at a place called the Marco Polo Bridge just outside Beijing. And indeed, the site is still there and you can visit it uh, today. I was just there a few weeks ago myself, in fact. But what happened afterwards for the eight years till 1945 is one of the great titanic stories of war of the 20th century. We don't have the exact figures that um, tell us exactly how many civilians and military were killed on the Chinese side, but most estimates suggest more than 10 million and maybe as many as 14 million or even more. We know that something like 80 to 100 million Chinese became refugees in their own country during the eight years of that conflict. We also know that the modernization in roads, railways, factories, industrialization, which had been painstakingly put together in flawed but real ways in the 1920s and 30s, were essentially smashed into pieces by the experience of the Second World War. And perhaps most important from the point of view of the war as a whole, without the Chinese involvement, without the Chinese resistance to the Japanese invasion in 1937, and without holding down more than half a million Japanese troops who were bogged down in China during the first part of that war, the whole history of the global Second World War might be very different. Because if China had surrendered, say, as early as 1938, then essentially China would have been controlled by the Japanese and Pearl Harbor would probably not have happened in the same way. We can't see that the, uh, the war in Asia would have, been, uh, uh, would have happened the way that we now know it did. And the connection with the European war might have been harder to make for someone like President Roosevelt. So there are all sorts of consequences that flow from China's involvement in World War II. But when I looked at the war, I found myself wanting to actually you know, write about it in, in detail. Indeed, my most recent book, as you kindly mentioned, is a sort of comprehensive history of, of the Second World War in China, partly because it seemed to me that very few Westerners had really wanted to take that big um, overarching look at it, but also because it's a tremendously important human story. Of course, it's a story about military tactics and it's a story about campaigns and strategies, but it's also the story of those children fleeing on boats up the Yangtze River away from uh, the uh, occupied cities, uh, such as Nanjing or Shanghai. 
It's about the constant air raids and bombings in the temporary wartime capital in the southwest of China at Chongqing, where the blitz that destroyed large parts of the city took place two years before the famous London Blitz. Nowadays, in Western memory, the, the bombing of London is still very well remembered. The bombing of Chongqing in China is remembered hardly at all. It's also the story, of course, of the many brave women and men who made their lives in wartime China, whether it was the intellectuals of the Communist Party, the Nationalist Party of Chiang Kai-shek, or the poets and writers, people like uh, Lao She and Ding Ling, um, big literary figures of the 20th century. All of them had their lives absolutely um, irreversibly shaped by the experience of refugee flight, of having to fight back against the invasion of their country, of the lack of knowledge of whether Japan could or would be defeated. It was an absolutely central experience to the China of the mid-20th century. And I think it's one of the reasons why if you go to China today, there are still so many memorials, television programs, museum exhibits, and indeed um, internet sites dedicated even today to the Second World War in China, more than 80 years after it first broke out. And can we explain why Japan decided to invade China and to fight America? Um, and as you said, it, is, uh, it was a, a, a dramatic strategy. Uh, uh, it didn't work out. Uh, Japan lost uh, the war, as we know, and uh, quite terribly. And what was the aim of the Japanese government and, and why did it decide it itself for this strategy? You could argue that, put simply, the story of East Asia in the 19, or the, the story of East Asia in the uh, early years of the 20th century was a battle between two major ideological forces, the growth of Chinese nationalism on the Asian mainland and the growth of Japanese imperialism in the islands of Japan. Chinese nationalism, we talked about a bit earlier in the conversation, uh, the May 4th movement and the rise of a feeling within China that China needed to make itself strong and push back against invasion. But in Japan in the early 20th century, a whole variety of things came together to turn it into, in some ways, a very dangerous neighbor for China. Most notably, the combination of a feeling that to be a top-level country, Japan really had to have an empire of its own. And over the decades, it had first taken the island of Taiwan. It had occupied and colonized Korea. It had taken parts of Manchuria and northeast China and was beginning to threaten China as a whole by the 1920s. In addition, economics did not help. The world, of course, was hit by the Great Depression in the 1920s, and Japan was one of the worst hit of all of those countries. So as Japan's domestic economy really took a downturn after 1929, you also find that politicians there pushed on the idea that Japan had to create its own empire. It had to be like Britain and France and have its own uh, territories to control uh, for growing crops and uh, setting up factories. And from the Japanese point of view, the most natural thing was not to occupy parts of Africa or uh, South Asia, but instead to turn to its neighboring country, which was, of course, China. So in a sense, those two forces coming together, rising Chinese nationalism and rising Japanese imperialism, helped to light the spark. But the United States was a third factor. At first, when the war between China and Japan broke out in 1937, There was very little formal overseas assistance for the Chinese. A certain amount of secret finance came from America and Britain. And the Soviet Union, in fact, sent some fighter pilots to, to help out. But 
in practice, in terms of formal alliances, China was left on its own. And Chiang Kai-shek, the, the Chinese leader during the war years, knew that it was impossible for him to defeat Japan on his own. China was too weak. Its troops were not well trained enough. It did not have the kind of technological strength to enable it to um, fight back against the vastly superior technology of the uh, of the Japanese. However, it did know that uh, the Chinese did know that they had to find an argument that would bring the West into the war. And part of that argument was about trade. In the end, the Americans became increasingly convinced that a Japanese-dominated East Asia would shut out the Americans from any possibility of free trade in the region. And that's where the sanctions eventually began in the 19, uh, early 1940s, with the Americans press, putting pressure on the Japanese to withdraw from China uh, and to make sure that they did not operate an autarkic, separated system of economics in their own region. Unfortunately, the result of this was to make the Japanese even more nervous and essentially push them into taking the greatest gamble of all. The idea that by a quick lightning strike against the United States, they could defeat America, at least in the short term, and then also bring the war in China to a close and bring about a negotiated solution. It was a very, very risky gamble even then, and that was, was recognized in the, in the Japanese high command. But the Japanese felt by 1941 that they had backed themselves into a situation where they either had to put their entire nation's efforts into fighting against the West, or they essentially had to fold up their tents and withdraw from the fight altogether. They had put themselves in a situation where they couldn't carry on as they were. They either had to win or to lose, uh, to lose utterly. Thank you, Rana. Uh, I would just have one last question, because this is also one of your area of interest. Um, so, in 2011, for the 100th anniversary of the Republican Revolution in China, there were not a big, there has not been a, there has not been a big momentum uh, to celebrate the anniversary. And next year, we are expecting the anniversary of uh, the Fourth May movement. Um, so, I, I would like just a quick answer. Do you do you think that there will be? Um, um, a momentum in the historical circles um, to study this movement in China and abroad? I think next year could be very interesting as the 100th anniversary of the May 4th movement. What we know right now is that intellectuals, historians, philosophers, thinkers are getting increasingly uncomfortable in China right now uh, because they feel that the authoritarian nature of Xi Jinping's government is preventing free academic inquiry. And free academic inquiry was one of the issues that was really behind the May 4th movement of 1919. So I'll be very interested to see if there's a gap between the official and the unofficial memorials to the May 4th movement in May next year. The official ones, of course, will talk about the May 4th movement as the movement that gave birth to the Chinese Communist Party. But I think at the unofficial level, we may see more celebration of the free thinking and academic debates that went on as part of that movement. And if that happens, it will suggest something about the direction of travel in China. In other words, will it become a society in the next few years in which there's much more constraint and restrictions on what people can talk about when it comes to politics, history and philosophy? Or will there be the possibility of a new opening up in which people can talk as they did a hundred years ago, about science and democracy as the driving characteristics 
of what China needs to become. Thank you very much, Rana Meter, for, for this very interesting conversation. It was a real pleasure for me to talk with you about China and your work on China's history. I, uh, you will talk on the second panel of the Winning Peace Conference that will take place on the 11th and 12th of October at the German Federal Foreign Office. I am really, really looking forward to hearing you, your country in Brussels, and to meeting you in person. You can find information about the registration or the conference in general on win-peace-conference.berlin. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. There are more to come, so stay tuned.